You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am being joined today by Dr. Vincent Guillermo Ramos. He is the Dean and Bessie Baker Distinguished Professor of the Duke University School of Nursing, Vice Chancellor for the Nursing Affairs at Duke University, and Director of the Center for Latino Adolescent and Family Health. Dr. Guillermo Ramos is a nurse practitioner, duly licensed in primary care and psychiatric mental health nursing. Dr. Guillermo Ramos' research examines the role of families in promoting adolescent and young adult health with a focus on mitigation, the mechanisms through which the social determinants of health shape health inequities. Uh, Dr. Ramos' research uh, has been federally funded for over two decades by the National Institute of Health and various other extramural agencies. He has published over 100 manuscripts in leading peer-reviewed science and health journals, including uh, the Lacent uh, Infectious Diseases, JAMA Pediatrics, Pediatrics, and the American Journal of Public Health. Dr. Ramos has developed a set of conceptual and applied web resources for social determinants of health mitigation. Dr. Ramos' works has been featured by national media outlets, including CNN, NPR, The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Guardian. Dr. Ramos serves as a member of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS, the HHS panel on anti, uh, anti-retroviral guidelines for adults and adolescents, uh, the CDC HRSA Advisory Committee on HIV, Viral Hepatitis, and STD Prevention and Treatment, and on the Board of the Power to Decide, a Latino Commission on AIDS and HIV Medicine Association. Dr. Ramos currently serves on the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Unequal Treatment Revisited, the Current State of Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare Committees. Previously, he he served on the NASEM Committee on Prevention and Control of Sexually Transmitted Infection in the United States. Dr. Ramos is a fellow of both the American Academy of Nursing and the American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare, an Aspen Health Innovators Fellow, and a Presidential Leadership Scholar. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ramos. Thank you very much, Ali. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. Uh, that uh, sort of what I would say is a lengthy introduction, but uh, <laughs> one that I really appreciate you reviewing. Uh, excellent. Uh, to have you, and I appreciate uh, the for for our listeners. This is the first in-person podcast we're having. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Ramos in town, and we uh, I'm grateful that you made the time for to uh, record this with me. Um, so I'll start with all of our regular. With my regular question is, how did you get started in the world of nursing? 
Well, you know, Ali, it's interesting because I, um, and I want uh, listeners to really appreciate this. It wasn't always clear to me that I wanted to be a nurse. I think that when I first uh, came into contact with the nursing profession, for me, nursing was synonymous with characteristics that I didn't think were really who I am as a person. I was wrong, and I'm actually glad that I was wrong. But I started um, focused primarily on social welfare. I spent more than two decades working as a social worker. And I think what drew me to social work was the deep commitment to social justice. I was born in the South Bronx in New York City. My mother is from Puerto Rico. My father is from Santo Domingo. And I and my siblings were born in the South Bronx. And I didn't know at the time that what we were experiencing were health and social inequities because everybody in my neighborhood was kind of the same. And uh, as I got older and uh, pursued college, I started to develop a language for what those inequities in fact are. And I realized that they were clustered in my neighborhood, that they were impacting people who were disproportionately individuals of color. And I became really interested in how I could intervene. Uh, social welfare had a set of principles and values that both looked at why do people fall through the cracks and then how do we prevent people from falling through the cracks. Um, that led me to public health and um, I pursued epidemiology because I was interested in taking the strong values that I had identified in social work and social welfare and developing um, community-based uh, randomized controlled trials that were designed to improve health conditions at first in my neighborhood and in the communities that I felt most close to, the Latino community, but then more broadly to communities around the country. And for that matter, I've done some work globally um, where there are clear health and social inequities. All that to say that as I was moving along, I had this sort of nagging, ongoing, burning sense that I wanted to provide direct provision of healthcare, that for me, um, the answer was not just the values of social welfare or the public health sort of community population, uh, you know, interventions, but it was really reaching the individual patients and their families. And that led me to becoming a nurse and ultimately studying uh, at the Duke University School of Nursing, which is today the place where I happen to serve and have the honor of being the dean. That's fantastic. Um, how did you? How do you think your um, your background or looking things from a, your own personal uh, experiences has really shaped how you navigated your nursing career? You know, it's interesting because um, I think there are two things I want to convey to listeners. The first is. Certainly my positionality, who I am, my life experiences growing up, uh, the son of uh, two immigrants. I consider my mom an immigrant even though the US, even though Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. Um, but also just uh, who I am as an individual. I happen to be a Latino gay man. I'm open about that. And I felt like there were so many inequities that were very proximal to my community, to people that I love and that I saw as part of my own life. And to be honest, um, I saw a reflection of myself, it was a mirror. And so the things that were happening to people in my community were things that I saw as potentially happening to me. And so mm. it propelled me to want to respond and it gave me a real purpose and a cause. And so I think my background informs my passion 
and it keeps me focused. You know, I'm in my third decade of working in the area of health, and um, I still feel deeply committed, and I feel really renewed largely because of what I see in the real world. And so when I say the real world, I'm not motivated uh, by the accolades, for example, of things that I or others have achieved. So I happen to be the dean of great school of nursing. Uh, I think nursing has accomplished many things that are uh, certainly noteworthy and things that we should be collectively proud of. But I think what, Holly, what really uh, motivates me is how are we doing in terms of morbidity and mortality in our country? And how are we doing with the allocation of our health resources? And how are we doing with the context and the social conditions that people live? And that hasn't changed in the directions that I think it should be changing. And that motivates me. I want to say also to listeners that I felt for a number of years uh, like somehow I was a fake nurse. And so what do I mean by that? Because I didn't come through the traditional route. I had had this entire career in social work and in public health and then later became a registered nurse and then an NP. And I kept on hearing from well-intentioned fellow nurses that if you didn't you know, sort of graduate, go to the med surg unit, bedside nursing, the, the more traditional pathway, that somehow, you know, you hadn't paid your dues or you couldn't make a contribution. I've not found that to be the case. I have found that my path, I knew that I wanted to be in primary care. I knew that I wanted to care for young people living with HIV. I knew that I was inter- interested in the integration of sort of HIV health, prevention and treatment, and behavioral health. Um, I've been able to make tremendous impacts in those areas. And I would say to listeners and to nursing students, um, follow your passion. Uh, Don't let other people define for you (laughs) exactly what your path should be. And we each have things that we care about. I know, Ali, you care a lot about veterans and trauma. We all need to be committed to those areas and demonstrate why others should also commit to those same areas that they're important yeah uh, it's interesting and i think it's come up on the show several times where um we are uh trying to um sort of uh confront some of the traditional uh, thoughts or mentalities of how nursing should be approached that you do your so many years on on the unit and then move on to whatever else and then what next step and then next step which hasn't really you know i didn't do that much time uh, on the unit after i graduated but i already had like uh, 10 years of being in the military as a navy corpsman doing you know frontline whether it was out in the field or in the like battalion aid stations uh, that the that we have in the military, uh, so I had already done a lot of things. And to be at bedside, I tried it. I was like, hey, that's great, but what else can I do? And it's one of the reasons I I became a nurse because there are so many different pathways. Uh, and I drank the Kool Aid. I have to admit, I drank the Kool Aid uh, in the beginning of like, yes, you have to do med search, and then you can go to ICU, and then you can. But then when it came to myself, I'm like, I think I'm going to start out in the ER. Uh, and that's what I did, and I did here. I'm like, that's great, but now I'm going to go do something else because the profession lends itself. Uh, and I think, uh, as you mentioned, I think it's important to follow what you're passionate about. And if it's bed night, if bed, bedside nursing is not it, uh, actually, we had I have a couple of students that went straight into ambulatory care nursing, and 
few years ago, people were like, no, don't go there. You have to go to MedServe. So, so I, I agree with you. I think, I think uh, we need to change our mindset on uh, just uh, supporting uh, the new graduates or nurses uh, in whatever they want to accomplish. And we find a way to get them there as opposed to putting those tra- traditional pathways in front of them. Um, now, you know, I would say just one thing that struck me about your story. It's also my story that it's not just about supporting uh, students to pursue their pathway, which of course I agree with, but it's really recognizing that because you had served in the Navy, that you brought all of that experience to being a nurse, Mm. and that actually you were and are a better nurse because of that. It wasn't a, a deficiency or something that you should sort of throw away because now you were pursuing nursing. But actually, you represented exactly the kind of nurse that we need, someone who can integrate different experiences and who can practice in ways that are needed in our profession. Um, To to be honest, we haven't done necessarily such a great job of being able to convey. I appreciate that. Actually, I was talking to uh, one of my... uh, uh, I I left another... uh, um, teaching institution uh, not too long ago and one of my students actually from called me up and said um, um, I'm really passionate about art and, and this student already had a, a, a previous degree um, and said and I saw that because I also do I dabble in art and things like that and they're like they're like I'm just like I'm looking for a way that I can marry the two worlds I'm like that's exactly what you should be doing because I and one of the reasons I like entry-level master's programs or second bachelor's degree kind of programs because one of the beauties of those programs is those students are bringing into the profession of nursing this diversity of culture and talent and uh, experiences lived experiences right uh, so I think it makes the nursing that much more rich for it so I, I appreciate it I appreciate it um, and your your own background in social work, I mean, that's that's invaluable in the world of nursing. I mean, uh, so many of us try to figure out social work after we become nurses, but you already came in with that uh, with that tool uh, already uh, ready to go. Um, now, can you share with me um, how you decided that you're um, you were going to go on for your higher education? You were going to go on for your masters and doctorate degrees like what was the decision was it a difficult decision uh, or uh, was it something that you're like you know what from the beginning I know I'm going to do this well it's interesting because um, what I didn't share before Ali is that I actually started my nursing career uh, once I had a doctoral degree already and went back and pursued oh, wow. an ADN and then pursued my master's degree so I really was committed to being a nurse because I went back and I was in class with folks that were a couple of decades younger than I was and I was trying to fit in. I didn't want people to realize at the time I was a a tenured professor at Columbia and I was taking classes in sort of basic science courses because I was so committed to being a nurse. I think my first sort of trajectory towards research, you know, I didn't see myself as being, um, you know, a researcher. I hadn't uh, fully understood or appreciated research. I I thought of myself as being more of a practitioner, and I wanted to spend my career advocating uh, for the communities that I came from. That was the initial thing. Once I got exposed to mentors along the way that took an interest in me, and in many ways they were what I call a window of opportunity. They allowed me to see what was possible, and most of those individuals 
were not underrepresented um, sort of faculty or mentors. They were people mm. who were members of the majority in those institutions, but they did provide me with an opportunity, that window that I could see what might be possible. Well, I took full advantage of that. And as I started to go down that path, I realized that I actually had an affinity for research. I liked research. I liked the idea of developing my own ideas. And I became really intrigued in um, particularly developing community-based randomized controlled trials. That's what I do across a range of areas, all focused on sexual and reproductive health. Uh, although most recently I've been doing a lot of work around COVID because of what happened in 2020. Right. Um, but for me, Ali, that was sort of my career. And then I sort of got the itch again. I had been thinking about nursing. I said, I'm going to go back. And I didn't have, um, I didn't have a great nursing mentor. Uh, I wish I would have known somebody like you because <laughs> truthfully, Ali, I um, would have probably pursued either an accelerated BSN or uh, what I'm really excited about today are the master's entry programs and right. the ability to uh, pursue your first professional nursing degree through a graduate degree. I went back to the ADM program, and while I'm very appreciative, that program did a fantastic job at training me uh, with the technical skills of being a bedside nurse, uh, I was really craving uh, sort of a broader experience, and that then led me to Duke, to the MSN program, and that's where my mind really just really opened up and I saw that nursing could have uh, impacts that were well beyond the sort of bedside role. And in, this is in no way saying that isn't an important role. It just wasn't the role that I wanted for myself. Yeah, yeah. And I think, and it's true because I think at every level that I have pursued my nursing career in, I think each degree has, you know, I sort of think of it as a, like a, my BSN allowed me to see things from a certain like 5,000 foot level and then my master's allowed me to see things from a 15,000 foot level and my, uh, you know, like doctoral degree, my PhD allowed me to see things from a 30,000 foot level. I mean, it just, it broadens your scope and understanding on your impact, right? Like what you could do or what possibilities and also higher degrees. Uh, I, I have found it this way and I'm sure a lot of people um, would probably agree with me that it opens doors for you, right? It opens doors for you. Um, not that your, you know, your your passion for to, for doing something may very much be at the same level, but what a master's or a PhD or a DMP would do for you is get your not only get your foot in the door, but it gets you an invitation inside, Absolutely. right? Uh, and I think that's one of the key things that you want to make sure that you have. Um, you have the credentials that goes with the passion and the uh, experience. I think that's that, that's important. Um, now, you have a lot of publications and accolades. And um, how did how did your work um, progress uh, once you, you, you know, got your nursing degree? Uh, how did you pursue um, the career that allowed that, not that it allowed you, but it um, it um, fostered uh, your passion to do what you wanted to do? Like, how did you decide what your next step was going to be after you got your um, nurse practitioner license? So you know, I think um, to be honest, each step of the way it has evolved and it continues to evolve, and it's looked different. Uh, depending upon the phase of my life and what I feel is sort of most important in terms of the next step. Initially, when I first started, 
Um, it was primarily focused on practice, and I was really uh, focused on caring for young people uh, living with HIV um, and supporting families in underserved communities. Um, what happened is that I then evolved into academia and started to pursue tenure. And um, I think for those years when I was pursuing tenure, it was mostly about producing the kinds of products that the university wanted me to produce. And that meant, you know, competitively receiving grants, learning how to write grants, establishing myself as an independent investigator, publishing and showing that I had an incremental program of research. And for a long time, Ali, that kind of consumed my focus because it was a demanding endeavor. Right. Um, but then I realized that what initially led me into it wasn't any of that. That was really the platform for me, and there are many different platforms, but for me that was one platform where I could have um, sort of an access or the ability to get invited into the circles where I wanted to shape the discussion and the folks who were influencing decisions around health. And becoming a tenured faculty member initially at Columbia uh, allowed me to do that. And so the next phase was really moving my research more into translational pieces. And that's when I started to do uh, much more work on uh, sort of federal and state and local policy work. I got involved in uh, national organizations, uh, both uh, within nursing, but to be honest, mostly outside of nursing. Mm. Uh, and I want to be really careful how I say this because, you know, I feel so much. Even right now, we're at a nursing conference here in Los Angeles, and so I feel really supported being amongst other nurses. And I'm also aware that too often, where most of the decisions are being made are not in the nursing spaces. And I would encourage listeners to think about how can we elevate nurses to serving in those other roles. And that's been something that I've pursued pretty aggressively. And when you introduced me, you talked about um, you know, a number of my appointments. And so one of the ones that I'm most proud of, actually two of the ones that I'm most proud of are first, um, Secretary Becerra appointed me to, to HHS, the Presidential Advisory Committee on HIV-AIDS. I actually had been appointed prior by Secretary Azar, but I, I usually focus on Secretary Becerra <laughs> and his appointment, his reappointment. But I think that committee uh, is one way where nurses and where my involvement uh, as a member of that particular committee can shape uh, how the country responds to the HIV AIDS epidemic. And you know, my role as a nurse has been to talk about the nursing workforce yeah. and how the solution to prevention and treatment for HIV and for a whole range of uh, infectious diseases or you know, the chronic conditions that are facing us, that nurses are at the center of that and that we actually have important models of care um, and that our ideas are worth the country seriously considering. Another one is uh, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Um, I, I've happened, I happen to have served on a number of committees. I'm serving on one now, which is revisiting unequal treatment. In 2003, there was a landmark report that came out from the academies that really highlighted disparities in healthcare. And it was uh, one of the first times that there was uh, a strong scientific argument for what was at the root of those disparities. So fast forward 20 years later, HHS has commissioned a new 
uh, committee through NASM, uh, which is the report we visited, and we're sort of examining what has the progress been? Uh, has there been progress? If there has been, what evidence do we have? What contributed to that progress? If there hasn't been, how come? And so we're in those deliberations now, and uh, in 2024 the report will come out, so I'm not able to say a lot about the deliberations, but what I can say is that those are two examples of why it's so important that nurses be reaching beyond a sole focus on our internal professional organizations and that we put ourselves at tables where we can shape uh, larger policy issues. And that, that I really love, Ali, and that's something that more and more I envision myself doing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and, and, you know, um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if for, um, for whatever reason, um, uh, a number of my guests I've had on the show have been involved with the HIV AIDS um, research and studies. And, uh, and I was, I've said this on the show before, my first experience uh, taking care of patients was actually when I was in the military and on the unit that I was in was primarily a medical surgical floor, um, but a good 70% of our patients were uh, service members or families of service members with HIV or AIDS. Um, and that's the population I took care of mostly in my first year and a half uh, in the healthcare arena. Um, prior to me being a nurse, I was a corpsman in the Navy, uh, but loved working with the population. Um, uh, they were so genuine and they were so kind during the whole, um, even though it was a very, at the time, this is early 90s, um, we didn't have all the medications we have now, and so it, w it wasn't a good situation to be in, not that it is now, uh, but I want to really quickly touch on a couple of things you mentioned, as long as we're talking about HIV AIDS, what can we be doing better? Because HIV AIDS is really not really talked about anymore. Once in a while, we see a commercial, pharmaceutical commercial on TV about a certain medication, uh, but we really don't, from a preventative perspective, we really don't hear about it like we used to in, the, in like the 90s um, or even like late 80s, early 90s. Um, what should we be doing from a, from a nursing profession perspective? So first I want to say, Ali, thank you for sharing your experiences because you're absolutely right. You know, prior to 1996, we didn't really have the effective medications that we currently have. And so really working with people that uh, were living with HIV oftentimes meant uh, sort of uh, supportive watching and people were deteriorating and unfortunately uh, transitioning in terms of their life expectancy. That's all changed. And so right. I really want to make sure that listeners know that we have all the tools today to prevent people from acquiring HIV. We've got really effective prevention. We have a prevention pill, we have a prevention injection that works really, really well. And for people that are already living with HIV, we have once a day uh, treatment regimens, one pill a day, and we even have injectables that are, uh, you know, both are very, very effective. And people who are living with HIV can have a normal life expectancy um, for someone in the US and in the case of individuals living with HIV, if they're virally suppressed and they sustain that, there is no forward transmission of HIV. So in essence, they can have a full life and not have to worry about whether or not they're gonna to transmit to someone else. That is like mind-boggling to me right. because that was not the case when we started. It and not. so it's an example of how far we've come 
and how much progress we've made. And if we can do this with HIV, can we do this with hypertension and diabetes and the other major conditions that are actually causing morbidity and mortality in our country? I would say that um, what is also true is that we have this very ambitious goal of, by 2030, ending the HIV epidemic in our country because we have these tools. And when we look at the progress that we've made, while I don't want to in any way diminish the progress, the truth is the progress has been uneven. And it has been the case that among certain communities, there's been much more progress mm. than other, committee, and other communities. And so when we look at uh, communities of color, when we look at the South, when we look at uh, populations that tend to be more marginalized, people who use substances, people who have persistent, severe, chronic uh, uh, sort of mental health conditions, when we look at uh, men who have sex with men, um, we look at the Latino community, community that I'm part of, we see a very troublesome pattern. We still see new infections, and in the case of Latinos, we see new infections going up, wow. which is really shocking when everyone else is going down. And we look at treatment, what we see is that too often folks are not linked to care, they're not being uh, sort of retained in care, and they're not being virally suppressed. There's no reason, Ali, why that should be happening, and it's really uh, a great example of an inequity because we have the tools. So imagine that you have everything you need right now to keep people healthy, or if they are already living with HIV, to prevent them from you know, developing sort of uh, opportunistic infections, their, their immune systems weakening. And those tools are not getting to the right people at the right, right. time. To me, we got to change that. And I would say to listeners that a career in HIV prevention and treatment in care is still a worthwhile one because many of the things that I've learned in HIV, I apply to MPOX or I apply to diabetes or hypertension or depression and anxiety. Uh, HIV represents probably one of, at least in my lifetime, greatest health challenges that we have faced as a world. And what we've needed to do is just unthinkable, and yet we have made major advances. And so we can do that in other places. Boy, could we change uh, the paradigm in our country around kind of the direction that we're going. Do you want to spend a little time, um, maybe a little later in our, in our interview today, to talk about what I see as being on the horizon uh, for nursing? Because yeah. I definitely think that some of what I've learned in the HIV space is important for nursing more broadly. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, now, as long as we're talking about HIV AIDS, uh, and I have you here as an expert, um, it, like it was not too long ago that they, they came out and they said the vaccines that they were working wasn't really effective, and that set the timeline back like at least like 10 years or something like that. If I remember correctly, uh, it was a significant setback. Um, but I think it's also important um, that uh, everyone understands there's still effective treatments out there, um, and I think that's that's we're just not hearing about it. And I th and I don't even think like from a nursing perspective we do enough education from for our nurses to be able to educate our patients on it. Um, so um, so definitely something that I think we need to revisit as a as a profession overall, and, and, and I appreciate you working in this arena. Just so that, just to be 100% clear with listeners, so one, as I mentioned, we have the once a day pill that is really effective at preventing someone from acquiring HIV. 
we also have what we call intermittent dosing for certain populations uh, who may be exposed uh, to HIV at very specific times. So let's say there's a season in their life where they may be engaging in either a sexual or a drug-using behavior that exposes them, they can use the pre-exposure prophylaxis intermittently. We have a strategy called 2-1-1. We also have what we call post-exposure prophylaxis, which is, let's say that I became exposed. I went out Friday night, I, I, I met a guy or a gal, I had sex, I didn't use a, a condom or a barrier method, I wasn't on PrEP. Then within 72 hours of that exposure, you can actually receive uh, oral medication that will uh, go a long way of blocking you acquiring HIV, assuming the person transmitted HIV to you. And then the thing that I'm most happy about is that we've got treatment for people living with HIV, and it's come down to every 60 days, someone getting a shot in the buttocks, and eventually it'll be in other locations, where that one, uh, or it's, it's actually two injections, but that one dosing of the, the two injections for 60 days, they don't have to worry about it. And right. it's sort of out of mind. And they're not uh, gonna experience health consequences from their immune systems deteriorating, and they're not going to inadvertently transmit HIV to their sex or drug-using partners. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing, that is amazing. Thank you for sharing that information. Uh, and uh, I don't wanna turn this uh, podcast into a into an <laughs> HIV AIDS uh, uh, education session, but if it turns out that way, I'm okay with it too. Uh, I do wanna really touch, uh, go back and touch a little bit on, uh, on your career um, uh, as in your tenure track, uh, as I know some of our listeners are tenure track professors looking for tenure, what was your uh, what, what would be your advice for uh, faculty? I'm sure you do this as a dean. What is your advice to faculty uh, looking to advance through the academic ranks uh, and just starting out? Because you know, uh, with it's more competitive now, and uh, the grants and Things like that out there do not don't always uh, align with uh, some of the work and research that we do uh, on academic side. So, uh, from a grants perspective, from a publications perspective, uh, what is your advice to some of the new nurse scientists out there looking to get a start? So, I think, Ali, for me, you know, it's such a great question because I didn't know what I didn't know, and so I was moving <laughs> along the way. And I was doing well, and everybody around me was saying that I was on course, I was uh, accomplishing all the milestones, getting different degrees. And when I met uh, my mentor, my research mentor, he started to expose me to the world of research, and I then realized how much I didn't know, and that there was an actual formula for success, and that part of what he was doing was grandfathering me in to a network of funded researchers by exposing me to them, by educating me about the norms in that world, by teaching me the skills of writing grants and managing those grants, and pushing me to publish uh, in uh, the most scientifically sort of high-impact journals that I could get into as an independent researcher. And you know, because of uh, his mentoring and his ability to teach me that formula, I've been successful in my career, but the cream doesn't rise to the top. The cream gets pushed to the top. And so <laughs> it's important that what I would want folks to realize is they should look for a mentor or mentors that can provide them with the technical and also the social 
knowledge of what it takes to be successful in uh, academia. The good news is that there's been a lot written about this. We actually know what some of the key components are. It's not just random, like, you know, if I happen to meet the right uh, scientific mentor, but there are specific things that institutions can do to help early career faculty to do well. I would say that in nursing, and I say this with a lot of respect, um, I think most of our schools, and so I'm not thinking just about schools uh, like UCLA or, or Duke or sort of top schools of nursing, but the full range of schools, I think we could be building a lot more infrastructure mm. to help uh, the cream, all of the cream is there, rise. Right. And if we could collectively do that, it would mean not making it so individualistic, but actually creating structures that would allow people to both initiate and sustain their programs of research um, in ways that build on our collective success. You know, at Duke, one of the things that we're doing is that we're forming these clusters. And the model that I came through, it was me as an individual pushing ahead and competing against other early career faculty who was going to get tenure. And some of us would and some of us wouldn't. <laughs> Right. And nobody said that, but that we all knew that that's what was going to happen. And I think one of the things that we've been trying at Duke is to form clusters that work together in order to strengthen our collective abilities to more effectively mitigate harmful social determinants of health, to develop multi-level interventions that can address things like structural racism. How do we uh, make this, the sort of research that we do impactful? We uh, don't see just publishing in an academic journal as impact. Sure, people like you and I, Ali, will read it, but how are we changing things in our communities right. but using rigorous science? And I think some of those things, schools can come together. And because nursing is the largest, and often I hear the most trusted, and I do like those two um, characterizations of the profession, but I want to add something else. And if nothing else that people remember, please remember this, highly skilled and expert. And too often we talk about being the largest and the most trusted, but we don't talk about highly skilled and expert. And I wish we would lead with nurses, the largest, highly skilled expert and most trusted. Uh, <laughs> and we can do practice, we can do policy, we can run organizations, we can do research. And the solutions to the challenges that we face in health lie firmly uh, in leveraging the nursing workforce. Yeah, um, that, that's so true that we, um, and again, um, I always question whenever the, the, um, the surveys come out and they say most trusted profession, I'm like, but how are we leveraging that and are we, are we uh, sort of cashing that in, right? Like how are we putting that uh, to work for us, um, to allow us to do what we do best, which actually comes to that highly skilled and experts in in, in many areas, not just in, in, in one area of nursing. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, uh, so I do have, uh, since you've been on both sides of, of the, um, uh, of academia as a beginner and, and mentoring, what is, uh, what is some advice you may have for someone who is mentoring uh, a new nurse scientist? Uh, because we do have uh, those one-on-one -on -one moments and so many people 
who may have not mentored before or may not have seen good mentoring or haven't uh, you know, really done their homework on it. Uh, they get a new neuroscientist and they do that thing that like, you're on the right track, keep doing what you're doing. And all the time that new faculty member, that new tenure track faculty member is just keeping their fingers crossed that they're doing and sort of uh, treading water. So what, what, is the, what is some good advice that you may have for some sure. mentors out there? I would say two things. It's interesting, again, another great question. I would say, one, that we need to recognize that just because someone achieves a certain senior status in the career does not mean that they're a good mentor and that there is a science of mentoring and that mentors need supports. And so we often focus on the early career faculty members and we try to think about what kinds of uh, didactic and experiential uh, components of our schools or our training programs can we build in for those early career investigators? Well, we need the same thing for our mentors. It is not the case, um, I've been a professor now for over 20 years, and to be honest, I've had very little uh, instruction or training in how to be an effective mentor, and I've had to learn that by actively pursuing, um, you know, to be honest, formal coursework in right. how, do you, how do you think <laughs> about mentoring? And I got better at it. I learned that some of the things that I was doing actually were not so great. And some of the things that I needed to do, I wasn't doing. And so, so one, you know, realizing that we've got to develop uh, sort of curricula and mentoring programs for mentors. I also want to share, and this is a bit of a delicate uh, topic, but academia has evolved. You referenced this earlier, Ali, that things have gotten harder, more competitive. And so for many of us, who have been faculty for a while, um, when we first earned tenure, what was expected is different than what is expected today. And I think oftentimes we view the path of early career faculty from our own narrative about what we experienced. Right. And to be honest, that's a little bit tricky. It can be good if what we experience is still relevant for today's early career faculty. But because we value certain aspects of the role, teaching, service, research and scholarship, uh, practice, uh, and we may put different emphasis on one or more of those uh, components, doesn't mean that's the criteria that the institution's gonna be using to evaluate the candidate. And one of the disservices that we um, sometimes inadvertently do is that we sometimes give mixed messages to early career faculty and we tell them to focus on this or that because that's what we think is important right. as opposed to really aligning what they need to do based on the current criteria and ensuring that the system has those supports. Again, that idea of the cream rises, uh, you know, excuse me, the cream gets pushed. It doesn't just rise on its own. So this, this uh, season, we are, uh, I am concentrating a little bit more on the leadership aspect and you're, you are in a formal uh, leadership role. Uh, what are some things uh, that you would you would say uh, are key to having a successful academic career because you are in academia, uh, an academic career that allows you to um, step into various leadership roles or be selected or appointed into leadership roles? Uh, how do you set up your career? Uh, 
if you want it to be purposeful and not just keep your fingers crossed, hope somebody notices your work. Sure. I mean, I think it's one of the things that I have actually admired about you that I see as being a common characteristic of many leaders. I think it starts with having clear values and purpose. And if you have a leadership style that is values driven, that you know what matters to you, that you are effective at communicating that to others, and you have a clear purpose, uh, then what you find is that over time people get that message and you're invited into opportunities that you can have those values and that purpose come to fruition and have impact. And so I would encourage any nurse or any person that is seeking leadership to get really clear about their values and their leadership style. That was sort of the first thing I did. I have a, an executive coach that I meet with every week mm. and she coaches me on, uh, well initially it was like, what is my leadership style and what are my values? And then what are my goals, uh, both in my current role at Duke and even beyond? You know, what am I trying to achieve? And holds me accountable at what I'm doing that is uh, sort of moving that agenda forward. And am I making progress? And so I would say, you know, sort of tip number one is values and purpose. Tip number two is get some training in leadership. It's the same thing as mentoring. And, you know, leaders are not just people who have been successful educators or successful researchers or scholars or even practitioners. Those things help, uh, but there is a set of, of responsibilities. There's work associated specifically with leadership. And I think that those are often skills that don't come intuitive to, they certainly didn't come intuitive to me. I had to learn about those things and I had to be willing to invest in my leadership growth. And that meant courses, that meant uh, fellowships that were focused on leadership, that meant putting myself in circumstances with others where I could sort of reflect on things I was doing right, things I was doing wrong. I had to study leadership. And so I've done that in a couple of great places. I um, increasingly uh, am interested in these opportunities for nurses but one of the ones that I was part of is something called the Presidential Leadership Scholars. We heard today from one of the panel members, and she currently, she's at uh, Florida State University. She currently serves at, in the PLS program. Well, I was in that program as well and graduated in 2016. What a great leadership program. I'm currently in something called the Aspen Health Innovators Fellowship. Um, again, a leadership program that's focused on how do you take your vision and your values and align that with uh, a specific leadership strategy. Mm. I know there are other Aspen Health Innovators Fellows at other schools of nursing, like Jose Baumeister from uh, Penn, who uh, is in the program. Um, and then I think uh, I have not been in this program, but I had the opportunity just a couple of weeks ago to visit the White House, specifically with a very deliberate purpose. I went along with Sarah Zanton, the Dean of Hopkins, and Pam Jeffries, the Dean of Vanderbilt. And the three of us had a meeting uh, with the director of the White House Fellows Program. It's been, Ali, 30 years since a White House Fellow has been a nurse. Yeah. And that was shocking to me because so much of what the White House Fellowship is, serving our country in a whole range of capacities, but at a very high level, um, is synonymous with nursing. And so how do we get nurses, the folks that are listening, uh, to this podcast to think about pursuing 
whether it be service in the military or federal service at one of our agencies or institutes or very particular high impact fellowships like the White House Fellows Program, what I walked away from that day at the White House meeting was that there is absolutely no reason why they wouldn't fully embrace a candidate who is a nurse. In fact, they would welcome nurses to apply. The problem is we're not applying. And I think part of that also has to do, I think I had this conversation with a colleague not too long ago. We don't know what's out there. And I think the profession is doing itself a disservice because when we look at like grant funding, when we look at fellowships, all we're 99.9% of the time we're looking in the nursing realm. Um, and we're just not looking beyond. And same thing you mentioned earlier in, the, in, in our talk is um, looking beyond nursing uh, for those partnerships. And uh, I think we're, I think as a profession, we do, our, do ourselves a disservice with how siloed we are. Uh, and I think that that's problematic on our end. Um, but, uh, but, but you're right, we're not applying for things that we need to be applying for. Um, Swali, can I just say yeah, something, because yeah. you, you touched a chord, and this may get me a little bit in trouble with some of the listeners, and I don't want to get in trouble, but I'm going to say this. You're absolutely right. I think that nursing, amazing profession, you know, more than four million nurses, registered nurses in the country, uh, that doesn't even include uh, our LPNs. Um, but because we are the largest, and because we have so many nursing organizations, and because we often exist in our professional organizations within nursing, we can sometimes develop a group think. Right. And even though we debate things in, in nursing, there's a lot of uh, difference of opinion in nursing. At the end of the day, uh, oftentimes we're talking to ourselves, and few of us are actually reaching outside of nursing and going to where the conversations are not what we're talking about in nursing and saying, hey, yeah. I'm a nurse and I have a, a position on this and nursing has a position. And I would say to you know all the listeners that whether you're a faculty member who's used to doing things a certain way, we started our conversation today about the med surge pathway and everyone doing that, to a nursing researcher who says we must uh, you know, study uh, particular nursing questions. And, you know, there was a lot of, or there is some tension around the sort of previous direction of NINR, but we've changed, we've right. shifted. And how do we continue to evolve, whether it be our research, our practice, our academic programs, our ability to influence policy? We have to continue to support one another and We've got to be willing to get out there and say, I'm a nurse, and I'm here to represent nurses and open up doors for more nurses to come into those non-nurse spaces. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, now, you, you mentioned something I want to touch on, and that has to do with, uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, 4 million nurses and, our, uh, and that's not including our uh, LPN colleagues. Nursing has so many different entry-level points um, and that's just the way the profession is has been set up and that's that's who we have where we're, we come from different backgrounds at different levels how do we address the sort of like the hierarchical structure that exists within nursing within academia within within service structures um, because we are all part of the same profession and how do we what is what would be your your 
opinion. How do we unify that voice? Uh, and I know it's, it's easier said that than done because we're we're not uh, we're not this uh, just one-minded body. So how do we how do we use that professional the, the size of the profession, the expertise in the profession, to move some of the health. Uh, um, things like health equities and social de- how, how do we move the needle on like social determinants of health and I know the future of uh, nursing 2020-2030 report came out but this one but this report for some reason isn't although it has more downloads than the first one it, it's, uh, it doesn't seem to have the same push and I know some states opted out of participating because it wasn't a workforce development type of a thing so what do we do as a profession to really help move the needle instead of a lot of small bodies within the profession trying to move the needle sure so that's a great question and so i'm going to see ali if i can uh, answer it in two ways so the first is that i think i'm going to put nursing on hold for a second and just look at u.s healthcare because i think there are certain things that are happening in U.S. healthcare that are very troublesome that should be a concern for all of us. And that's a way to potentially unify some of our purpose and our values. The first is that we are experiencing as a country more and more chronic disease. Right now, today, more than half of adult Americans have one or more chronic conditions already. And if you project out to the future, that number is increasing and there is uh, no model that suggests that chronic diseases are going down based on our current data. Another thing that is uh, terribly worrisome is that for more than four decades, we've had increases in our life expectancy in the U.S., but in recent years, we've seen pretty significant declines, mostly driven by COVID and by the opioid overdose epidemic, but life expectancy in the U.S. is going down. Another troublesome um, sort of reality of our healthcare system is that we have a total misallocation of our resources. We have uh, what many have called the sick care model, where we invest the vast majority of our resources, our financial investments, in caring for people that are sick. And we spend very little to keep people healthy so much less on prevention, health promotion, or what some have called restorative care, which means if you do in fact have a condition, moving you back to being uh, your optimal health. And the last thing that I think is important is that social conditions in the country, particularly poverty, uh, racism, other uh, social processes, have gotten worse, not better. And so when we think about ending the war on poverty in our country, Uh, We haven't been able to do that. And in fact, poor people in the United States have remained pretty constant for multiple decades, despite all the different programs that we've had. And so I think one thing that we need to do as a profession is focus on the external metrics, the ones that I just talked about, and use that as a unifying purpose and as a way of saying that nurses, because of our sheer size, all of us, irrespective of the level of education and the scope of practice, although I'm going to get to that in a second, how we can contribute differently. Um, We need to make this our North Star. Too often we focus on how great we're doing. And again, I want to be really respectful to listeners, but uh, I'm often part of 
many um, organizations where there are awards or there are recognitions for accomplishments or you know even my own school that I love um, you know we often talk about our ranking and and uh, we have these metrics that somehow suggest that we're doing great. I want to challenge that respectfully and say that when we look out into the world and what's happening around morbidity, mortality, allocation of resources, social conditions, we're not doing that great. And that we need to uh, have more of a focus on that and less of a focus on the internal sort of hierarchies and issues around uh, who is accomplishing what, who's part of what group, et cetera. Right. I would say that scope of practice issues do matter. There's a role for nurses' aides, there's a role for LPNs, there's a role for registered nurses, for NPs, uh, CNSs, DMPs, and PhDs, and hopefully I haven't left anybody out. But I think that what's important to me is that we need to expand what each of those levels can do uh, it's not just about having more of us. A lot of the discussion is about having more nurses, building the workforce. Yes, we need more nurses, and we need to retain those nurses. But what doesn't get talked about as much is that we need to reimagine what nursing is contributing to healthcare, the way that we work. And we need to think about models that take advantage of multiple levels of nursing at the top of our licenses, not just the APRNs, but everybody from the nurses aide, the LPN, the RN, all the way up. And how can we collectively shift the focus of healthcare to prevention, mm. to health promotion, away from the sick care model? And this is Ali something that I learned in nursing that I wish was sort of the poster for health in our country. I think we've got a model of care that we don't value enough as being the solution to some of the inequities that we see in health. This whole person perspective, this functional sort of, uh, this flexible sort of uh, location uh, that we can work in across multiple settings, this commitment to cultural competency, the incorporation of, of uh, technology and sort of digital tools. And there are many aspects of the model of care that we provide that could be the solution to what is happening in our country. I think the problem is that rather than lifting our voices collectively with a very strategic agenda that is focused, where, and again, I don't want to offend anyone, but we're largely invisible. Mm. And when we are uh, reported on in the media, it tends to be the bad things that happen. It tends to be things about COVID and all the you know, strikes and, and trauma and, you know, lack of nursing workforce. I wish that we could flip that. Yes, much of that is true, but we could flip that to talk about all the ways that the more than 4 million nurses in our country are transforming health and impacting outcomes and why our perspectives and models of care are the future of the country's health. And we spend very little time on that. Uh, I agree. I think we're good about perhaps um, sharing that within the nursing community through conferences and publications, things like that. But we're really not good about doing it outside of the nursing profession. Where I think that's 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 where we're not being present, and we're not always, and we don't always have a seat at the table necessarily. Uh, I think that 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 is a huge issue. You know, Ali, I spend a lot of time talking to elected officials, both at the state level, the local level, and the federal level, 
I also spent a lot of time talking to important institutions. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, maybe it's CMS or maybe it's a particular federal committee that's looking at health. And um, instead of moving through those different circles, I'm often struck in my one-on-one -on -one meetings with an elected official or with a staff member who works for that elected official, how little they understand nursing and how little oh, they yeah. understand what we do, who we are, what we bring, our value. And often the voices at the table tend to be groups that are, uh, they're not larger, but they may have more economic resources, they may have better advocacy or lobbying. They've been more strategic. I would say that as a profession, we've got to tell our stories. You know, at Duke, we had a New York Times reporter, Lauren Hilger. She wrote a story in the New York Times about nurses, and I thought the story was great. We invited her to the school, and we asked her a question, and I was blown away by what she said. Someone in the audience said, uh, Lauren, how do we get the media journalists to write more positive stories about nurses? And she paused for a second, and she said, well, that's a great question. She said, reporters, journalists, we write what society thinks about nurses. We write uh, what we understand based on what's being reported. The best way to change the narrative about nurses is for each individual nurse to elevate their voice and actually tell their own story about being a nurse. Mm -hmm. And that over time, reporters will get that message and they'll start writing stories that reflect who we really are. And so again, for listeners, tell your story. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And that's something we, we know we're underrepresented in the media and the number of stories is one reason. Another reason I do the podcast is to make sure that uh, people like yourself are, are exposed to the population that aren't always going to conferences and don't have opportunities to listen to uh, to uh, the individuals that are making impacts within the nursing world in different ways, right? Uh, so I think that's key. Uh, I just want to be super cognizant of your time. Um, anything else you want to share with us? I know uh, you want to circle back to a couple of thoughts. You know, I think I got a lot of those things in. I think I'm just going to take a minute, though, Ali, and just say uh, I'm going to do a little bit of advocacy for my school, and not because uh, I'm the dean, although certainly that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, but it's not the only reason. You know, I graduated from this school and I experienced a phenomenal education while I was there. Our school has recently shifted our mission. Uh, the entire purpose of why the school exists through really focusing on health equity and social justice. We have really challenged current uh, paradigms on healthcare and how do we think about new ways of really mitigating harmful social determinants and getting to better access outcomes and reducing costs. And we are building a collective vision of practice, of service, of scholarship, and of research in our educational programs that reflects that. So I want listeners to hear that if that resonates with you, then we would love for you to consider Duke University School of Nursing. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that's the least I could do is give you a, a, a minute of advertisement on, on, since you, you gave me your time. I appreciate that. Thank you, um, So we have been listening to Dr. Vincent Ramos. Uh, he is the dean and Bessie Baker, distinguished professor of Duke University School of Nursing and vice chancellor of nursing affairs at Duke University and director of Center for Latino Adolescents and Family 
health. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to uh, circling back uh, with more episodes for this season. Thank you. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.